0: Farming program with our equipped Steel stockholders, Withambrook Industrial Estate, Grantham. For all your steel needs, call their friendly experts.
1: We've another Lincolnshire farming champion. How do we keep doing it? And how did he do it?
0: More successful other crop if they're growing soils which uh, haven't grown potatoes recently.
1: Lots of tractors will soon be rumbling into local school playgrounds.
2: Why? It's so important for the children to be able to have this opportunity to help understand where the food comes from.
1: They need more farmers. Find out how you can get involved. We'll talk about making new coal with one of the speakers at the recent Lincolnshire Farming Conference, along with timely agronomy advice, the markets, the weather and the week's farming news. The Week in Agriculture.
0: This is the Farming Programme with Steve Orchard.
1: Plenty of weather last week then, plenty more this week too. Well, that's farming in winter in England. This is the Farming Programme podcast for Sunday the 18th of February 2024. Hello, I'm Steve Orchard. In the news this week, DEFRA has announced that 10,000 farmers across England have applied for SFI, the Sustainable Farming Incentive, since it opened back in September. That's one in eight of eligible farmers and the rest are being strongly encouraged to get involved. According to the Rural Payments Agency, and Farming Minister Mark Spencer. NFU Vice President David Exwood said it was good to see such positive engagement in the farming community with SFI. However, he still wants more detail and a clearer timeline for the application process. A study has revealed that companion plants reduce flea beetle damage on oilseed rape. We'll talk more about that next week on The Farming Programme. And sadly, another large outbreak of avian influenza has been confirmed in East Yorkshire, leading to a three-kilometre protection zone and 10-kilometre surveillance zone around Hutton, Cranswick, and the culling of 48,000 birds. There's also concern over the rise of salmonella in EU and UK broiler bird flocks. It's on the rise, with over 4% of flocks testing positive in 2022, a rise of 56% over the previous year, the highest since 2009, and double the rate of the EU. Those concerns and the figures came from the Northern Broiler Conference last week in Harrogate. On a more positive note, we have another Lincolnshire champion farmer, growing fifteen hundred acres of mainly Maris Piper's on the Fens, and winning the National Arable and Grassland Awards Potato Grower of the Year is David Armstrong, who I spoke to with the brains behind the Spud Barn. Daughter Kate, how do you do it then? What's your secret, David?
0: And we grow potatoes on quite a wide rotation, one year in ten. So uh, we're potatoes are grown. Uh, last year, it'll be ten years' time before we're growing them out again. I-, I might be retired by then. Now I'm not quite... <laughs> um, And is that is that one of the things you put the success down
1: to the long rotation?
0: Well, that that's a good starting point. Uh, potatoes are susceptible to quite a few different pests and diseases. They're much more successful as a crop if they're uh, grown in soils which haven't grown potatoes recently.
1: And you grow them after cover crops.
0: Uh, yeah, well, we—I uh, we, always think there's a better way of doing things. So I'm always looking for new ways of uh, uh, of of doing um, jobs and uh, sort of growing cover crops and keeping the growing crop in the ground as long as possible and not having bare soil. It's good root structure is very important. So that cover crop growing over winter is uh, aids that. And attention to detail, I think, would probably be the uh, the biggest. Um, thing which probably uh, helps in growing successful potato crops
3: yeah and and we've in well last seven years we drip irrigated um all of our crop and um, so traditionally we would have overhead irrigated but dad was quite an early adopter of drip irrigation where essentially you plant what's pretty much like a leaky hose pipe down the ridges so any of the water that is applied goes straight onto the crop which helps with things like our maris piper that we grow that is very susceptible to common scab um which one of the ways of trying to reduce that is by getting water on at the right time just as the the potatoes are starting to form so that's really helped with a, a quality perspective there but also two years ago when we had the really really dry um summer it, it was invaluable um when overhead irrigation a lot of it would get would evaporate before it even reached the crop all of our all of the water we were applying was was going to where it was needed but that
1: must require extra investment up front in terms of the cost of piping and of course the time
3: of laying it yeah the more more of the the cost is sort of up front on on the the drip side of things getting it set up getting it laid in the first place um, but then in theory it it then is a lot easier through the season it's more water efficient it's more fuel efficient and the pumps run at a lower pressure so they're not using so much fuel and also you're not using tractors to move irrigators up and down fields and yeah gen- generally once it's all set up and particularly once you've got crop cover because we do have a few issues with things like hairs chewing through the tape <laughs> so you go to the field and there's lots of little water fountains popping up all over the place but once you've got crop cover it, it generally looks after itself it's just a case of walking up and down and making sure everything's still attached overall it's a uh, we think a better way of doing it <laughs> And you've got quite a good weight loss reduction, I gather, haven't you? We try to keep our uh, yeah, what what we're losing when it goes into the factory to an absolute minimum. Like most of that is down to sort of skin finish, any rots or greens. Like we we do grade them in the yard before they leave here. But yeah, one of the the main things is sort of um, bruising uh, and and skin finish. So that all comes back down to sort of attention to detail, handling them right dad has always said um, (laughs) to handle potatoes like eggs so (laughs) when when they're being harvested they they really do need handling really gently otherwise they bruise and and nobody wants to cut their potato open and find black marks inside um it's always a little bit of a shock (laughs)
1: yeah it's a point though isn't it even if it might be perfectly okay to eat it doesn't look that attractive in the supermarket does it
3: no exactly and and with anything in the supermarket it's it's really down to, to visual and skin finish is one thing people see that when they pick it up but they don't want to then take home what they think is a, a good bag of potatoes and then cut it open and, and find that there's there's defects on the inside that that's usually what people get most upset about.
1: And David used supply to Branston how does that work?
0: Yeah, we we supply them uh, upwards from fifteen hundred, to probably a couple thousand tons of uh, of packing potatoes a year. Um, it, it's uh, we're only eight miles up the road, so we've had a close working relationship. I think I started uh, dealing with them back in the early nineties when they originally got a Tesco contract, which they have maintained ever since. And now now they are uh, Tesco's main supplier of potatoes, so it, it on a massive scale. So. Um, we, we work very closely with, with them, we're also involved with a net zero project that, uh, that them and others um, with a, some government funding are involved with, um, I'm trying to remember what it's called, Beehive Technologies, yeah, that they've also gotten an input into this trial we're doing. So basically we're trying to grow get as close to, as we can to growing a crop of potatoes um, affecting the environment as little as possible and uh, hopefully being able to call it net zero. Does that allow you a certain amount of benchmarking working for Branston? Um, we, we have done sort of benchmarking in the past. It's quite difficult. Um, I'll say that's not overly much the uh, the focus. It's really just trying, well, what we're actually benchmarking is trying different ways of growing potatoes. For example, last year, the main part of the trial was a cultivation trial from sort of trying to grow potatoes straight into a stubble uh, doing as few cultivations as possible against the more intensive usual uh, recipe we use and and they and those measuring uh, the carbon uh, well Relief, Co CO2 the, release. the CO2 yeah. released from the soil after each cultivation mm. and ultimately there wasn't a massive difference between all the different uh, intensities of cultivation um and, and then there was a big nutritional trial using lots of different products, uh, especially products coming from waste streams, like for example, one potential product which is available this year is uh, high in phosphate, which comes from private signature waste, and apparently there's thousands of tonnes of it a year available. That's
1: interesting. I must admit, that was a new one on me. I didn't realise. <laughs> you learn something new every day, don't you? Yeah.
3: Um, I was going to say, there there is an element of, of benchmarking though within what we do at Branston, in that they they do run a Ubis scorecard where it, nothing is named. It's all obviously anonymous, but we can see how we're performing against other growers within within the Branston producer group. So that that's always a good indication of of how we're doing it and they also do wash-ups so you can go and see your produce against other growers within the producer group so that that always because you you see what we're doing and and we hope we're doing a good job and and we get good feedback through what we do on the the spud barn on the retail side but yeah so it's always good to be able to to visually see that as well yeah so kate tell me about spud barn because this is your baby i gather isn't it (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah it is i mean the, this, we've always done a few bags from the farm gate, sort of traditional 25 kilogram bags sort of in, in years gone by um, and when I'd come back and was starting to do more on farm they'd been talk about doing sort of smaller bags and then when Covid hit and obviously supermarket shelves were emptying and people were panic buying and um, all of a sudden we we saw an influx of people coming down the the farm road looking for potatoes. So there was sort of a rough idea there beforehand, but but COVID really gave us a, a kick in the right direction. So we now focus... Purely on 10 kilogram bags. And it sort of originally was started that we were going to just do it from the farm gate, but we, we quickly realised that to, to sort of maximise what we were doing, the best thing was to offer deliveries. Um, so we now offer sort of a, a, a delivery service sort of within around about a, a 15 mile radius of the farm, sort of covering Lincoln and the, the surrounding villages. So yeah, it, it it's going from strength to strength each year. And people could, we, we have a website and people can go online and just of their potatoes and then they just turn up at their door. What more could you want? <laughs> it shows you, isn't it, how
1: something good comes out of something bad like COVID. Exactly.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it it really did give us the push. And I think at the time it it really made people start to think about where their food actually came from and that the supermarkets aren't completely infallible. And actually if you can go direct to a producer then then you've shortened that supply chain and it it, it was a good thing to have come out of COVID. David, Kate, thank you for that.
1: National Arable and Grassland Award winners of Potato Grower of the Year. Congratulations on the award and thanks for joining us on the Farming Programme this morning.
3: Thank you, Steve. Thank you.
1: Many schools in the area will have tractors rumbling into their playgrounds very soon. Why? Well, it's the return of Tractors into Schools Week, organised by the education team at Lincolnshire Showground, from where comes education executive Paula Cragg. Paula, good morning. Good morning. Hi. Tractors Into Schools is coming up again, the seventh year that you've done this. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about what actually is Tractors Into Schools? I mean, the the clue is in the name, I know, but what (laughs) actually happens?
2: Absolutely. Tractors Into Schools, as you say, is in its seventh year. It's a great initiative that's run by the Lincolnshire Agricultural Society, and it helps to form connections between the farming community and schools and helps to educate, support children so they basically get a better understanding of what agriculture and farming is all about, and then they can understand the role of the tractor plays in delivering the food, to, uh, the food to our tables. So um, it's a brilliant initiative, and it's always been very popular.
1: It certainly is popular amongst the schools and a lot of the farmers in the area as well. And I guess this is helping kids understand not just how farming works and what a tractor does, but where their food comes from.
2: Absolutely. Um, like you say, the farmers love taking part in this and young farmers as well love to get on board. It's so important for the children to be able to have this opportunity to help understand where the food comes from. And so, idea in the future, they'll be able to make more informed decisions about what they eat, hopefully healthy eating, it all has an impact. Also, it's important to know how hard the farmers work and the effort that goes into producing the food. Um, we know there's a big problem with wastage. obviously uh, food wastage, and this I truly believe will helps. if you understand how hard it is to get that food produced and the um how it gets to your to your plate, I think you know you'd appreciate it more and probably hopefully in the future less wastage. So it's great to educate the children on this and Absolutely. adults as well to be fair so that's yeah, so. very
1: true. and it it helps with the school curriculum.
2: Absolutely farming can be linked to all areas of the curriculum. From science, if they're teaching, if schools are teaching year three and four, they look at soils and um, rocks and soils. Obviously, farmers can go in, talk about the importance of soil health. We've had agronomists working um, as farmers that come in and teach the children that it can be linked to um, all parts of the curriculum: Uh, Technology, obviously the history of farming, English, uh, maths especially. It's a brilliant way of connecting um, farming and schools in the curriculum together.
1: How many schools and pupils does it tend to reach?
2: Last year, we reached over 3,000 pupils. This year, um, we're still running it out. We're looking for farmers to get on board with this so we can connect them to some schools. Um, So far, we've been in contact with about 26, 27 schools, and that's rising all the time.
1: So schools you're okay with, but farmers you need more of?
2: It'd be great. I know it's been a difficult year. Um, with all the weather that we've had. So that has been something that's affected it a little bit this year, uh, which I totally understand. But if there's anybody out there, any farmers that would love to take part in this, young farmers as well, please get in contact with me.
1: What does a farmer actually have to do? If a farmer's thinking, oh, this sounds very interesting, never been involved Mm -hmm. before, what do they actually do on the day?
2: On the day? Well, they'll, they'll meet the school beforehand. I'll get them connected. I'll do all the paperwork. And um, they will they'll they'll meet them beforehand, so they get to know they'll know the teacher, know what they're wanting to get out of the visit. And on the day, they'll take their their tractor, and the kids will be they'll love it. They'll um go go on there with the tractor, and they'll talk about farming and the tractor and what the tractor does and how they got into farming. On top of that, then when they've they've done that, they can go in the classroom and. Pre visit, they can have a word with the teacher, and if they're teaching soils and rocks, they might be able to take a few samples in and show them how to do soil sampling. It might be that they're reception class, and you just want to look at the tractor and all. Oh, this is what the old, you know, the history of tractors. um Depends on what works for the curriculum. It might be healthy eating they're looking at, and they want to talk about the food. We have um, several farmers. Some that will do one school. Some that say, can we do about five? or um, one that will do one in the morning and one in the afternoon. You can be there for about an hour to two hours and it's within a, a two week time frame.
1: Yeah. So there's plenty of flexibility there. Absolutely. And it's a, a show and tell, I guess, to a certain extent, isn't it? Um, yeah. Great stuff. So just remind us when it's on and where can we go for more information, how to contact you?
2: Right, Trafficking into Schools is the week commencing the 26th of February till the 8th of March. And if you'd like to get involved, please contact myself. It's Paula Cragg, and I'm on the um, Lincolnshire Showground website. If you go to education and um, you'll be able to contact us that way.
1: Excellent. Well, Paula, thanks for joining us on the farming programme this morning. I shall certainly be at one or two of the schools in the area and uh, having a chat with some of the farmers and the kids there. So, yeah, Paula Craig from Tractors into Schools at the Lincolnshire Showground. Thanks for joining us on the farming programme this morning.
2: Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much.
1: From the playground to the fields now with a look at the state of play crop-wise and some timely agronomy advice with the damp Sean Sparling. Morning, Sean. Yes, morning Steve. I know, another
4: inch of rain since we spoke last. It doesn't know when to stop, does it? So, needless to say, with three inches of rain in the last ten days, very little in the way of drilling going on. We covered the options for spring crops, etc. pretty well last week, I think, so I won't go over that again. Other than to say, because it's unlikely we'll be drilling before the middle of this week, the only winter wheat varieties that are still safe to drill till the end of the month are going to be Skyfall, Brewin, Bearstow and Swallow. So, if conditions do happen to improve, there is still hope for them. Plenty a slug activity in these wet conditions, though some of that wheat that was drilled a couple of weeks ago getting hammered, as well as some of that that happened to survive the wet autumn. So keep a close eye on slugs in these crops as the next few days and weeks unfold, because as I say, perfect conditions for them. Brand traps, bit of layers mash under an old tile or a, a fertilizer bag in a field, very useful way of monitoring them. If you do get out drilling, or if you got some in earlier this month but you didn't get the pre-em on, which to be fair, prioritising the drilling was the important thing. These later crops are unlikely to have such a high weed burden, so any pre-planned pre mrex that you may have had since the autumn should be just double-checked after any drilling delay, just to make sure they're crop safe. Any fields that were drilled last October, just before the rain started and didn't stop, and which didn't get sprayed as well, they need to be looked at with a raised eyebrow so that you can plan a suitable strategy over the coming few weeks. Residuals for blackgrass, wild oats, meadowgrasses, etc., still a very good option if the weeds are small if they emerge. Mixes containing synmethylene or ethyfumisate, probably your best bet on blackgrass. But do be careful on waterlogged soils, particularly when you're using residual herbicides and also watch your total dose of ethyfumisate if that's what you're using particularly if you've got sugar beet in the rotation because you can't put more than a kilo of ethyfumisate on any field in any three year period. You can apply something like Zerton which contains ethyfumisate from two leaves up to six leaves of the wheat with something like synmethylene you can go up to grow 30. A bit of flufenoset is still available, might still help too. So speak to your advisor about the right choice, but don't expect miracles in levels of control. You're going to be disappointed if that's what you're expecting. It'll not be perfect, but it should be well worth the effort. Plenty of manganese deficiency start to show out here now too. Very important, obviously, to correct nutrient deficiency before you go applying herbicide mixes for grassweed control. Manganese sulfate powder can be a little kinder to the crop than liquid, but any good quality inorganic liquid should be absolutely fine as long as there are no frosts about and it may be irrelevant in these conditions but stay seven days away from the rolls and um, no rush for nitrogen out there on these sopping wet wheats as wet as it is little and often when you do go if that's imminent you really don't want another couple of inches of rain falling onto 80 odd kilos of applied ammonium nitrate on cold soils slow-growing crops poorly rooted crops because the losses are going to be colossal and remember you can apply untreated urea that's your without a urease inhibitor on it up until the end of March after that it has to be protected or applied with an inhibitor or you just switch over to another nitrogen form such as ammonium nitrate so as urea doesn't particularly leach and it works best in cold damp conditions urea is probably going to be your safest choice from a minimizing losses perspective in these current wet conditions if you've got it rape crops now starting to show signs of growth and starting to green up as I said last week some aren't as I also said last week so do check for the cabbage stem flea beetle larvae there's no threshold to help determine the likely impact on the crop but if you're finding larvae easily in the crop just chat it through with your agronomist especially if there are other agronomic issues like high levels of blackgrass or broadleaf weed, or if it's an overall thin crop or a backward crop because it might not be worth persevering with some of those fields and it'll be important to try and make the best decision before you go applying large doses of expensive fertilizer. The propitomide by the way is starting to show some effects on grass weeds now in the Aussie right it can take eight to ten weeks before you'll see it from the road but Usually the first signs are what we're seeing now when the shoot base of the grass weeds start to look like a spring onion and they just break off with just a gentle tug. Charlock as well in the orseed rate generally been well controlled by the frosts over the last few weeks. Some of the big plants dying on their feet in the fields, very visible now, but we always get a proportion of smaller plants that survive the frosts if they've been sheltered below a canopy. Bifenox is really the only option for charlock control now. It is an emu, it's an off-label wreck specifically for Cranesville control actually, but it also gives moderately reliable and incidental control of charlock. Just be careful though because the only thing that's really protecting that crop is a good layer of wax from bifinox and with the state of some of these crops out here I would think very very carefully before I chucked it at it. You've got until the buds are enclosed so you've still got time if need be. They are ready for their first hit of nitrogen and sulfur in their first dose when you do get the opportunity and it wants that as soon as conditions allow. People talking about drilling beans, remember beans don't need to vernalise so to some extent winter and spring beans can be used interchangeably but you need much higher seed rates of winter beans that are drilled in the spring and they'll always be 20 odd percent lower yielding than spring beans drilled in the spring as well as being much later to harvest. pre herbicide wise as well in beans we've got no straight pendimethalin products approved anymore in spring beans so they're only available in mixtures with either imazamox or Clomazone now so plan the pre em very good for brassica weeds, Clomazone very good good for cleavers so it's all a little bit samey it's wet it's cold we're all miserable so let's see what the next seven days bring
1: thank you sean more from sean same time next week on the farming program where we head to the peatlands and check the markets and weather the farming program with our equipped steel stockholders with umbrook industrial estate grantham
2: supplying the region for over 40 years
1: this is the farming program podcast i'm steve orchard At the recent Lincolnshire Farming Conference, amongst the many excellent speakers, I had a chat with James Brown, fifth generation of the Brown family to run the Lapwing Estate Group. Now, you may remember I visited the farm a couple of years ago to talk to James about their robotic programme, Earth Rover, and I'm pleased to say I'll be back there for a follow-up in a few weeks. For now, though, let's hear what James had to say about peatland. He farms a lot of such land, and it's not all been plain sailing recently for a different reason to most Lincolnshire farmers. James, what's wrong with peatland?
5: So the fundamental problem with peatland is 400 years ago, Charles I got the moiden to drain it. Now, there aren't many government policies that have been successful for 400 years, but what he wanted was more fertile farmland. And actually, peatland is really, really good for growing crops. And if that was the end of the story, life would be brilliant. The challenge is, which wasn't known then, that is known now, is that as you drain peat for farming, you then oxygenate the peat so it dries out. And as it does, so it effectively gets broken down by bacteria and that carbon gets released into the atmosphere. So hence it's now 3% of the UK's total carbon emissions. So, sorry, 3% of the total, not yeah. just 3% of farming's emissions. No, no, 3% of total and bear mind agriculture is only 11% because land use is on top of agriculture and yeah this peatland is a real real challenge and the main problem is on the one hand I can drain it and have really good farmland and I say over a third of all UK fresh produce is grown on peatlands and if we stop using it for that we've got to import that or you've got to use lots of extra water fertilizer if you grow it on other soil types. So, to stop the peatland emission, you re-wet it, but then you can't grow crops. So, this is where you're
1: going with your rethinking peatland projects.
5: Reverse coal. Tell us about reverse coal. So, the whole idea of why we're rethinking peatlands is because I'm currently a farmer producing food. (laughs) And we want to still be able to produce off this land. And at the moment, you know, government has a policy to re-wet it, but the policy was around this whole idea of sort of peatland restoration and that's great but you don't get economic activity from peatland restoration you don't create jobs you don't create you know activity in the wider economy so for me it was how do i what can i grow on it that you know the scientists are going to be happy that we've solved the emissions problem and actually can make the whole system better so what we're doing is first of all we've been recording baseline data and I know it sounds really boring but we haven't rushed into this I looked around the environment, what was growing naturally, in the bits we weren't farming along the rivers, and there's lots of willow, so I thought, ah willow and reed, I know I can turn willow into energy, because people have done that for years, if I grow willow I can raise the water table and the willow will continue growing quite happily, and also if it then floods, well the willow will sit underwater for a month or so, and it it'll be fine. So that's a more resilient model. Then what we've done is said, we're going to turn that willow so that carbon has come out of the atmosphere into those trees. Now, if I've just burnt it, that carbon will go back into the atmosphere. So what we're doing is we're heating it without oxygen. So it then thermally breaks down and it gives off effectively something called syngas which is carbon monoxide and hydrogen we then turn that into energy which we use for indoor farming both glasshouse and vertical farm and we also end up with solid carbon and we're burying that solid carbon back underground so burning coal has been the biggest single cause of climate change so let's make you cold. That's James Brown from Lapwing Estates and as I say we'll be back there soon for an
1: Earth Rover update. One more speaker to come from the Lincolnshire Farming Conference next week. A fascinating chat with author, presenter and soil microbiologist Neil Fuller. A guaranteed good listen, I promise.
2: Links FM Farming. Market
1: reports. Starting as usual with livestock and from masons and partners at Louth Market, auctioneer Ed Middleton. Good morning Ed.
6: Good morning Steve. Uh, starting off with the prime cattle uh, this week it was the day for heifers, uh, an all-in average of 288.2 pence per kilo. Top price in the pounds per head were F. Wallace and Son of Biscathorpe at 1,767 pounds and five pence. And in the pence per kilo were JC scoglio Bournemouth at 301.5 pence per kilo. Uh, moving swiftly on to the Prime Hogs, an absolute fantastic trade this week with an all in average of 301.16 pence per kilo and an all in average pounds per head up 140 pounds and 18 pence. An excellent trade right the way through and an all in average up considerably on the week. Heavy well finished hogs in big demand. Top spot this week went to RJ Leeson of Caster at a fantastic 180 pounds with his run of 30 hogs averaging a fantastic 173 pounds and three pence. Topping the pence per kilo were Ben and Pippa Williams of Mablethorpe, topping at 353 pence per kilo. In all, a super run of hogs many, many more required weekly, um, so please support for this coming Monday. Just a very small show of store lambs, a very mixed show, uh, topping at 79 pounds for Emily Skamen of Alford. Moving on to Cullews, this week we had an all-in average of a, a super £119.58 with a top price of £185 for RJ Leeson of Kester. Use again, will be in big demand over the next coming week, so please support with numbers for our weekly Monday market. Uh, a reminder, this coming Monday is store cattle. Entries are required for that. That concludes this week's Market Report. I'm Edward Middleton, auctioneer at Louth
7: Market.
1: Thanks again, Ed. And with a look at the grain markets and with some guide prices, Openfield's Kit Dickinson. Morning, Kit.
7: Good morning, Steve. Grain prices fell to new lows as managed funds and speculative selling continues to weigh on values. A lack of fresh fundamental support news encouraged from fund managers to increase their sole positions in the US agricultural futures markets. Also, funds hold a substantial short position for matif wheat futures. The short positions are running at historically large values and will need to be covered at some point as that side of the room is now getting rather crowded, but for now they appear content to roll their positions forward into the deferred positions. Russian wheat values have eroded after a brief spell of stability in an attempt to attract fresh demand following the drop-off in export pace. Bad weather was the reason for the slowdown in December and January combined with shipping issues via the Red Sea due to attacks on vessels transporting through that region. Russia have also increased their grain export quota from February to June to 28 million from a previously stated 24 million metric tons, which does appear optimistic given their current rate. Unconfirmed reports suggest that the Russian government have lowered their recommended export price to $235 fob from $250 previously. In reality the cash market is already trading below this level and any change is only relevant for the public tenders to the likes of Egypt where the recent sharp drop in EU prices would have made it a viable alternative to Russian wheat if the floor price had indeed maintained itself. So moving on to barley this week, prices are coming under pressure both on old and new crop. The old crop markets are drifting with molsters being reluctant buyers of the April to June position and no real farmer selling. The new crop has also come under pressure and is expected to be a big barley area which is keeping buyers out of the market currently. Opportunities to trade old or new crop is just about non-existent. The UK molster is now saying that they have finished buying old crop and they will come back to the market before the end of the season to top up with demand and individual stocks and sales. Some spring barley has been planted but there is still a considerable amount to go in. A couple of weeks of dry weather has enabled farmers to start their spring plantings but a considerable amount of this was actually wheat. The weather forecast for the next few weeks does remain unsettled so it is unlikely that we will see any more plantings for the foreseeable future. Looking at oilseed rate, motif rapeseed has bounced from the recent lows before finding resistance at 425 euros. The whole oilseed complex remains under pressure with Chicago soybeans and Canadian canola both trading around multi-year lows. Last week's USDA report was bearish to soybeans. Attention was on the 23-24 Brazilian soybean crop numbers which were only reduced by 1 million tonnes to 156 million compared to the expected 153. Argentina and Paraguay have been left unchanged with a small increase for others. So the 23-24 US soybean outlook is for lower soybean exports and higher ending stocks. And a global 23-24 soybean supply and demand forecasts included higher beginning stocks and lower production, lower exports and lower ending stocks compared to last year. So looking at wheat prices then for the week, March 155 to 162, May 158 to 168, August 165 to 175 and November new crop 175 to 185. Milling wheat premiums for old crop are circa 65 to 70 pounds. Feed barley for March 138 to 145, May 137 to 147, August 125 to 132, and November 135 to 145. For malting premiums, please do speak to your open field farm business manager. And lastly, oilseed rape, March 327 to 337, May 330 to 340, and there are limited values going forward from there.
1: Thanks, Kit. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. A mixed week with high pressure turning to low, mostly dry to start, but quite a bit of rain midweek. Mild for the first half of the week with daytime highs in double figures, but turning colder with frost likely and daytime highs of seven or eight in the second half. Winds stay west to southwest in the mid-teens MPH, but gusting to the 30s and 40s at times. Next week, a look ahead to the Low Carbon Agriculture Show, a list of election demands from the CLA, and we'll consider the true cost of cheap food with Neil Fuller. This is The Farming Programme podcast. I'm Steve Orchard. Until then, have a great week. The Farming Programme with Araquip Steel Stockholders Withambrook Industrial Estate Grantham
0: BSI ISO 9001 Accredited